Matthew 5. So, our passage today starts in 21 and runs through 26. But this is kind of a new section for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We had the transition point in verses 17 through 20 last week. This transition of moving into what what's the law in the kingdom of heaven what are the rules what's expected this is the transition we made last week and then we really get into the nitty-gritty for the rest of matthew chapter 5 um, of what is the expectation for our behavior for citizens of the kingdom of heaven Uh, and again a reminder That it's not, act this way and you will be good enough for the kingdom of heaven. The reality is, is you can't do it. You need Christ. You need the Holy Spirit and you need the Father. That is the reality. But as Paul says in Philippians 3, even though I have not obtained this perfection, I strive to make it my own because Christ has made me His own. And this is a reality we cannot forget as we are in Matthew, as we are in the Sermon on the Mount, as we are in all of Scripture. We must remember the work, of the, uh, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The supernatural work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So as a way of introduction, I just want to remind us of what we saw in 17, 18, 19, and 20 last week. Three things to keep in our minds as we roll on through the rest of Matthew chapter 5. Um, number one, Christ has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Christ is the author of the Old Testament. Christ has set forward the law of God in the Old Testament. He did not come to remove it, to make a new one, to set up new rules. But He has come, one, to fulfill it in doing it perfectly. Two, in being the fulfillment of what is to come, the Messiah. And three... To elevate it and to call us to obedience to it in a way that is deeper than what was being taught at the time. So those that's the first thing, that Christ has not come to abolish or to bring down the law, but in the opposite, He has actually come to exalt it. Number two, whoever does the least of these commands will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever does and teaches these the least of these commandments is called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we cannot escape the fact that God, through Jesus Christ, calls us to obedience, even if we are a Christian, saved by grace through faith and forgiven of all of our sins. You still cannot escape obedience. You cannot. And number three which is more in the context of the hearer of the day, righteousness for the kingdom of heaven, for God, 
he tells them, must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, we'll get more to that in a minute, but note, reminding ourselves that the Pharisees and the scribes made themselves to look righteous when they really weren't. Okay, so let's keep those few things in mind as we look on into this next section. Now, before we jump into anger, verses 21 through 26, I want to pull back a little bit, and that's why I read a little bit more this morning, and to see... One, what Jesus is saying that might cause people to think, well, how do you really feel about the law? And two, it just taking all of this in at once helps us to understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying. All right, so we see in Matthew 5.21 through actually the end of the chapter, these two sayings. Look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said, or you have heard that it was said to those of old or to the ancients. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said. Well, let me actually read what he's saying, so that'll help us. Verse 21, you have heard that it said, you shall not murder. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And lastly, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this is how Jesus follows with each one of them. And I won't read all of it, but just so you get the sense. Verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment in the context of murder. Verse 28, in the context of adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 32, in the context of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 34, in the context of swearing oaths, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. Verse 39, in the context of retaliation or justice. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
verse 44 in the context of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. Verse 44. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, it reminded me as I was reading that, Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler asked Jesus, How do I inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? What do I got to do? And Jesus says, Keep the law, basically. And his answer was, I have. When you read these first few verses of each of these sections, you have heard that it was said, don't do this. You have heard that it was said, don't do this. You have heard that it was said, do it this way. You've heard that it said, don't do this. Our response might be, okay, I did it. I haven't done those things. I haven't murdered anyone lately. I've not committed adultery. I have uh, been kind to... Uh, those who love me, I, um, I don't swear by heaven or by earth. Um, all these things I'm able to keep. That's where the Pharisees were. That's where the scribes were. They had made the law of God so thin that they could themselves obey every law. Or at least so they thought. They had made it so easy that they could stand before people and say, I am righteous. So then we get back to that statement at the end of 20. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so the people look at the Pharisees and the scribes who are obedient and righteous, self-proclaiming, and go... Whoa. Something is wrong here. Because they're keeping all the they're keeping all the commandments, at least what it looks like, but Jesus says that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, my righteousness must exceed what they are currently doing. We used that example last week about um, Biloxi Beach. How you look out and it looks like the ocean is beautiful and you could just run out there and, and just have a great time in the ocean. But as you walk out, it never gets past your ankles. For hundreds, it's just thin and lacks any depth. And that's what trying to keep the law in a thin, easy way is. Jesus in this section is doing something we have, we have the grace and the blessing of being able to look backwards and read it in the context of Scripture. But what he is saying, or he's doing something, he's, he's um, here, here's some theological terms to help us understand what he's doing. What the kingdom of, let me rephrase that, what the kingdom of heaven's purpose is, what it wants from its citizens. Number one, purification. Think about the Pharisee and that thin layer. They looked beautiful on the outside. They looked righteous, but within them they were corrupt and dead, full of sin. And this section is a section that 
stirs up wanting to purify the internal, internal, to cleanse us, not just on the surface, but within our hearts, in our makeup, who we are as people, to cleanse us and purify us. And number two, to fill us with righteousness. So the idea of purging the wicked and filling in with righteousness, of calling evil, evil, and letting it be pressed out and pressed upon that true righteousness, not the thin, false righteousness, but true righteousness that comes and dwells within, that that might come in and take its place. And this is just what's called sanctification. This is called making the sinner a saint. Making the wicked righteous. Making the, um, the, what's the word? The unclean clean. We'll go there. But it's supernatural. It's supernatural. Jesus tells them, go and cleanse your thoughts, basically. We could take that as an, as an easy way of looking at it. It's not just your action, it's your thoughts. Now change your thoughts. Seriously, go try that this week. Fight your own thoughts and you will be exhausted at the end of the day. There is that uh, cliche example, but it's helpful. If we could just plug your mind into this projector and let people see your thoughts, and it's enough to condemn you to hell. Yep. A purging of the wickedness, a purification, and a feeling of righteousness. That's what Jesus' words are trying to do in this section. And not just give you this checklist to go and live by or try to hold up to, but he wants to make you holy. He wants to make you like him. And that's what these words do. That's why this goes deeper. That was the intent of the law when it was given. As law came, sin abound. When law was when when sin was named and given a law, then our flesh wants to do it. So let's look at this first one. Um, yeah, let's look at this first one this this week. Anger. Verse twenty one. Verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, some of your translations may say, You shall not kill. But as we look at Scripture, we can know that the, 
The better translation might be murder. Uh, In Genesis, God himself sets up um, capital punishment. To take a life means your life will be taken. Uh, We know that uh, God was and God has been and in his in the word of God has used battle and war for the sake of goodness and righteousness. And that the term kill in its broadest sense doesn't dictate judgment, but that of murder, that of taking a life unjustly. Now, I want us to think about this for a second. Um, What is murder? But it is that of um, taking human life outside of any prescription of God. Now, there is great debate even among Christians on these things, capital punishment and war. But I think as we hold to Scripture, we can see that uh, God is not in His commands going to bring liable or judgment upon the idea of just to kill. Now, we're getting some pretty sticky Sticky conversation here. Does anyone hear me? This isn't easy. This isn't an easy thing to say. That say not that the better translation for this is probably murder as opposed to kill, because it might stir up in you or someone the wrong idea. So let me just go on the record in saying: Do not put it a life. To death. Do not take the life of another person. Do not take the life of another person. Notice the two, I don't want to say asterisks in it, capital punishment and war, but notice the authority that God has given to people who make those decisions. The government, the law. Romans, 4, Romans 13, God has put in authority rulers for the sake of peace with the sword. Not you, not me. The authority that he has placed. So, do not hear me wrong when I make this statement of saying that murder is the better translation and that it gives you some sort of out to take life. Now, I'm not expecting that of anyone, but it it needs to be said. So with that, let's look at what murder brings. Verse 22, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So, we kind of already hinted at it a little bit. We could be talking about two different types of judgment. Worldly or divine. Which one's he talking about? It's safe to go ahead and just assume both. It's safe to assume that to murder brings judgment in this world 
upon the authorities that God has placed in rule, and two, before God. Now, one's temporary, one's eternal. But they are both in place, and I believe that they're both referenced here. To murder will be... So, you will be liable to judgment. You, that word is like, you, you're going to be found guilty. You're going to be found guilty in judgment. God has ordained authorities to keep peace. But God is definitely the ultimate authority and judge. And to murder, as He said in His commandments in Exodus, is to bring judgment. Thou shalt not murder. So the, the religious leaders and teachers would say, okay, I can handle that. Is that all you're asking of me? I just don't have to murder anyone? Okay, I'm a pretty righteous guy then. But Jesus is saying, oh no, 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 no. Let us consider the origin of murder. Let me repeat that. Let us consider the origin of murder. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. So, I know if you're like um, some, my wife, she likes, used to like her crime shows. You know, the murder mysteries. Some of you might read those novels or watch those TV shows. And what was the hardest crime to ever solve? What was the hardest murder to ever solve for those detectives? It's the ones that they couldn't find a motive, right? They didn't know of anyone who wanted them dead. They could not figure it out. Because if you don't have a motive, you don't know where to go. But what is a motive? It is the reason behind the act. So what's Jesus getting at here? Murder is committed because of an internal sin. Murder is committed because there is an eternal sin that is being acted upon. The origin of murder begins in the heart. So Jesus builds upon this. That eternal sin that drives murder is anger. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Uh, that, if you look up that word, that Greek word, of all the times that it's used in the Gospels, it's, it's really translated wrath. Someone is wrathful and executes something there based on that wrath or that anger. It is the internal sin that presses out an action of hate and violence. It leads to murder. But most, the most interesting thing that really got them to talk and should really stir you up is not that, it's that if anyone says they're angry, but it's that you will be liable to judgment. Imagine the, the, the people 
listening to Jesus, and he says, if you murder, you will be guilty. And he says it in a way that they know that they mean bad guilty. That they mean this is a judgment because they know the law. This is God's law. But then he turns around and says, the same punishment, the same guilt will be afforded to you if you are angry at your brother. Now that's going to cause some controversy. And that's why Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law. This is also why Jesus says, not one dot iota will be removed from the law, but you must keep it. And I'm making sure you understand how deep and how weighty the law of God truly is. Don't just murder. But do not be angry towards your brother. Anger leads to other sin. The consequences are the same. How do these two equate? Now don't get me wrong. Let's not get this wrong. Because this is uh, sometimes set forth as an argument against what Jesus says. So are you saying murder and anger carry the same weight? Of course they don't. Jesus is not denying that the consequences of murder in this world is equivalent to being angry with someone. We go back to Romans 13. God sends, sets up, and ordains authority. He gives law so that people can live uh, civilly. Civilly? I don't think that's a word. Um, You know what I mean. To take a life brings greater consequences than being angry with someone. We can all be on agreement with that. If you were to take a life of this world, it would have a drastic impact in this world. And therefore, the, the punishment, we can say, must fit the crime in this world. The standard of the law that we have. But now let's think about this in terms of who is the judge? Who is the lawgiver? If God says don't do this and don't do that, and He is a infinite God who is infinitely just and infinitely holy and infinitely righteous and you break one of his commands, the consequence is the same across the board. To murder or to be sinfully angry with someone makes you completely disqualified from the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to say that again. To murder someone or to be sinfully angry with someone disqualifies you from the kingdom of heaven completely. Turn to James chapter 2 with me.
Verse 8. Let's start at 9. Verse 9. Uh, verse 10, sorry. Chapter 2, verse 10 of, of uh, the letter of James. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of it all. Now, if you are pulled over for speeding, are you guilty of extortion? No. If you're guilty of um, running a red light, are you guilty of assault? No. But in the law, in the courts of heaven, where the judge who sits on the throne is the lawgiver, the law keeper, perfectly just and righteous to break one command to fail in one point of the law is to be declared guilty before God. No way around it. And that guilt brings about judgment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't care if you're Hitler or Mother Teresa. They have all fallen short at some point of the law. And they all are disqualified from the kingdom of heaven. But the righteous requirement of the law has been, been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For God did what the law and man could not do. He sent his son to live a perfect life of righteousness. Jesus never once was sinfully angry. He never got upset with a sibling. Can you imagine that? He never once got road rage. His thoughts were pure and holy and righteous. The thought of murder, let alone an angry thought, so far from our Lord Jesus Christ. To fail in one point of the law is to be guilty of it all. So, to be, clear, to, to be declared liable for judgment, for anger should be eye-opening for the hearer. That's hard. That is deep. That is not thin. That is so deep, it wrecks me. It causes me to see that I need something outside of me. I need supernatural. I need righteousness. I need forgiveness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. 
But blessed are those who seek and thirst and hunger for righteousness. Now that's, well, we've got to be clear, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap this up here. And we'll, we'll work through the rest of this this evening. And I pray that you would all return this evening. Um, we'll connect some more dots, maybe, and, and look at this idea of dealing with one another with anger and issues among us. Um, but there is a passage in the New Testament that says, be angry. Paul writes to the Ephesians, be angry. He says, be angry and do not sin. So, good luck with that one. Jesus showed righteous anger throughout his life and did not sin. So, there is righteous anger There is the possibility that you can be angry and not sin. Now, I wouldn't try it without a lot of prayer and a lot of time in the Word of God, a lot of depending upon Him in your life. Be angry and do not sin. Um, I I, I, got to say this, because some of you might be holding your Bible and seeing in this passage that there is a bit different language in verse 22 than what I have. So if you have a a King James Version, it says something to the effect of, but if I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be liable to judgment without cause. So that's a a difference between uh, the King James Version and most of the newer translations of Scripture. When I say newer, I mean in the last 60 to 70 years. So we have to have this discussion here. That's not in my translation. So which one is right? Why is there why is there this difference? Okay? Well, we have to understand something. And this is completely aside from this section, but it needs to be said for the sake of your understanding in reading scripture. Because someone will come to you and say, well, your one translation says this, and your translation says this, and there's just all kinds of errors and contradictions in the Word of God. You got, if you know how we get the Word of God and why there might be differences in translations, you might be prepared to have a conversation with an unbeliever and show them that uh, maybe it's not God who's mistaken here. So why would the King James Version say one and another one say different? Um, there is no single whole manuscript, old manuscript of the Bible. There's not. Every, everything that you have from uh, the um, King James Version, what was the one before the King James Version, Sylvia? The Geneva Bible, which which came over, which was the the translation that, that came over uh, with the Puritans when um, they were coming to the New America. All of these translations are compiled based off of old manuscripts, pieces of old manuscripts 
that they bring together. And there's not a full... I don't even know if there's a full letter or book uh, in a manuscript. And what had happened was when Paul sent out his letter to a town, they would write, they would copy it. And then copies would start to go, and other people would copy it. Other people, and these manuscripts go out and out and out, and there are, there are so many. And what, what we've done over time has been able to piece them together through things that are way beyond my comprehension and been able to verify what was said. Now, if you say that sounds a little fishy, and we don't even have a full copy. Let me tell you this. Uh, out of all literature, all literature in mankind, nothing has more verified manuscripts than the Word of God. None. I'm trying to think of some illustrations, but I can't. Um, we have more copies. I think, I, I want to say we have more copies of small manuscripts than of... Shakespeare. Did you hear that? We have more old copies of the Word of God than we have copies of Shakespeare. Original manuscripts passed down. Handwritten. And there are a whole bunch of others that I can't think off off the top of my head. Anyway, so here's what we have. We have manuscripts that were written right after uh, Paul wrote them, the letters. And then we ha- and they just go on and on and on and on and on. Well, a while back, they found some manuscripts that were older, closer to the written time of origin than what was used in the King James Version and the Geneva Bible and all these other bi- versions that were going around. So to be closer to the actual point of origin would think you would use logic to think that's probably more accurate. If it's older, it's better because it's closer to the writer's date. Okay? So what most modern translations were started after those new manus- those new old manuscripts were found. Right? So that's why we get some discrepancy or some translation differences. But why would one say that? One would say uh, without cause. Well, there's another thing that when people have translated Scripture, they've had to understand that there is some human error in copying the Bible. How many of you have had to write sentences in school before? Yeah, come on now. So when you're writing sentences, what do you do? You'll miss a like, Oh, I can't. You've got to go back. Or if you've had to copy something, you've got in trouble, and they're like, here's A of the encyclopedia. Go copy this and you copy it, you'll miss a word, right? Well, that happens. And that happens as the people were writing these manuscripts and passing them down and down and down. But also, people with good hearts and good intentions would see a passage, and they would be writing it out, and they said, oh, okay, not be angry, would be liable to, whoa. And they would think, hey, whoa. But wait, I remember Paul said that we could be angry. So within a good heart, someone who is copying one of these manuscripts would, would take a biblical thought of, okay, you can be angry and not sin, and go, I'm, I'm going to put 
without a cause. And just like I'm helping them understand. Now, that's, that's frowned upon, but it happened. And this is one of those cases that you might see something additional that is biblical, but isn't in the older manuscripts. So the manuscripts that my translation goes off of, the older ones, they didn't have that without cause. And so we can think, okay, it's older. We're seeing it in all these other ones, so we're going to leave it out. So, but here's the good news. The without cause is biblical. That's why it's left in the king. That's why it's left still printed today in the kingdom. And that's why in the bottom of mine it says, some say without cause. Because Paul said, be angry and do not sin. So there was a big rabbit trail we just took to come back around. Be angry and do not sin. It is possible. You better be sanctified. You better be a mature believer to be able to be angry and not to sin. Let me just add one more thing. If you have a King James Version and you like it, keep using it. If you have a a modern version and you like it, keep using it. Most translations are good. One is not more holy than the other. One is not from the... They're all English translations who have some human error in the translations... But the Word of God has no air. Okay? So if you have a King James Version and you like it, buy another one and compare it. I do that. Every time I study, I look at three different translations. So just FYI. Okay. Back to what I want to say. Three things. So how can we distinguish sinful anger versus righteous anger? And then I'm going to conclude here today. How can we conclude, or how can we distinguish sinful anger versus unri- or, uh, righteous anger? Our passage can help us. If you're angry and you're not sure if it's sinful or righteous, look at verse. Uh, the, let's look at the rest of verse 22. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. If your thoughts or even your words start to sound like what I'm about to read next, your anger is sinful. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, you will be liable to hell of fire. So, we know in the Proverbs, and Jesus uses the term fool, so we have to comprehend what are we talking about. But one, the idea in the rest of this verse is, if you are insulting people, your, your anger is sinful. If you're insulting people in your mind, your, sin, your anger is sinful. Are these words popping up? That, that, and really, these two ideas, these two words—the the insult to the brother, the, uh, the 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 KJV says raka, which means empty, means they're empty-headed. If you're call, if you're saying things like that, like that guy's got no brain, or he's such a you know you know you're ta- you're insulting their intelligence. Your anger is sinful. And the other one, fool, is more of an internal, um, they lack any heart. Or like, If you are attacking someone in your mind or with your words, stop it. You're sinful. Your anger is sinful. Because you know what leads after that as well? Murder. 
and you say, I would never do that, you better watch yourself. If you say you would never do something, you better plead to the Lord that He would keep you from it. I'm telling you, on, on a scale of sinfulness, you're not that different from Hitler, okay? I want you to understand that. The depravity and sin that is within all people could cause and lead us to all kinds of things. But by the grace of God, He has kept us even from wickedness beyond to that. I don't, I don't go home and say Luke called us Hitler or that all people are like that. The point is, is that the evilness within us is capable of all things. Especially when you're driven by pride, when you're driven by selfishness, when you're driven by your, your own desire to su succeed. So one, think of what, what are you thinking? Is this sinful? How am I thinking? The second test is accountability. That's why we gather together. This is why we become friends and fellowship together. If you're unwilling to listen to someone else, you cannot know whether or not your, your actions are in the right. If you're not willing to submit to authority, or if you're not willing to submit to a brother and sister in Christ who says, you might want to straighten up. And if someone is telling you that, especially a brother and sister in Christ, you might want to listen. Husbands and wives, Ouch, huh? Ouch. Let's listen to our spouses. Lastly, the third thing, distinguishing between sinful anger and righteous anger. Look back at James 1. And we'll conclude here. James 1 is a good instruction on how to live and to keep from anger. But I think it's also a good barometer of whether you're an angry person or not. James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If you are someone who does all the talking and does not listen, more than likely you're a person who is angry. And I don't mean you're a talkative person, you're a social butterfly, therefore you're an angry person. I don't mean that. I mean if you're not willing to listen to reason, if you're not willing to listen to someone else speak and their, what they have to say, their point of view, their argument, if you're not willing to listen and hear and not speak, you might just be someone who is being angry towards people. So... Jesus probably was a man of few words, but the words that he spoke were profound and deep and weighty. Think about his time before Pilate. Think about his time before um, Herod. He didn't, he didn't have to say anything. 
He let them talk. And he did not bite back. He did not fight them with anger. Now look, we're just going to finish this sermon with verse 20. Knowing that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of, it's a matter of righteousness. Okay? The kingdom of heaven is a matter of righteousness. Verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now all of you in your gardens this time of the year, and this is what he's talking about. If you're in your garden and you're rushing around angry and throwing everything, what are you going to produce? Absolutely nothing. uh, James is full of agricultural terms and examples. There is no righteousness that will grow in your garden if it is full of bitter anger. Now, don't walk out of here saying, I'm not an angry person. Think, think, think about it. Are you just suppressing it? Is it just in you being built up? You know, it's not, we don't take, well, I didn't say it, so then I wasn't in the wrong. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's not about the fact that you didn't say it or you didn't act upon it. It's the fact that you thought it. Now, we all need help in the cleansing of that right unrighteousness. But the, hear me, everyone. Hear me. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He will purify our hearts and our minds. He will purge us of all uncleanliness and fill us with righteousness. And I just might say, you want to try to do that without seeking righteousness? Without, I'm telling you, you guys are going to get tired of me saying to, saying to you, if you're not reading your Bible, all you're, saying, all you're hearing from me is gibberish. That's it. If you aren't in the Word of God, you have no hope. If you aren't in prayer, you stand no chance. None. Let us seek Him and His holiness and His righteousness. We'll come and we'll look at the rest of this passage this evening. Let's pray.